a little pixelated. <laughs> but that's okay because it keeps us humble. Um, <laughs> so this morning we're going to look at uh, the end of, of Matthew. So we've been going uh, through Lent and through the uh, crucifixion, resurrection. And so I thought, well, let's, let's just finish out the book of Matthew. <clears throat> uh, Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Uh, we, I've divided it into several sections, and we're going to spend the next several uh, weeks uh, looking uh, specifically at these different uh, <coughs> these verses. But what? I, <coughs> sorry. <coughs> when you look at this picture, this illustration that that PJ has has crafted for us here, uh, <coughs> do you ever do you ever have the, those wham moments? Uh, it's like being hit over the head by a two-by-four, right? Wham. Uh, sometimes it's a, it's a good thing. Other times it's not so good. You know, I had one of those wham moments uh, not too long ago when, when God showed me some sin in my life that I hadn't realized was there. That was a good thing. Uh, but then there's those other times where, where you have that wham moment and you realize, oh, dang, this is, this is not good. This is not good what's happening. I, lo- <clears throat> I love the picture here that, that PJ illustrated uh, for us, because here we see somebody. <clears throat> All right, thanks. It was probably the coffee I drank just before I started talking. Um, but wham, uh, you see here, uh, it's described as when you hit something hard, really hard, right? Wham. Uh, it's, it's defined as an actual uh, express, it expresses the sound of a forcible impact, something being struck forcefully. You can also use wham metaphorically, right, as uh, something impacted you emotionally, or you come to some kind of realization. Teddy Roosevelt, uh, in 1912, he, was, uh, he ran for a third term in office and lost, and he decided to do uh, one more extraordinary thing with his life. He decided to go down to uh, South America, to the Amazon, uh, and cruise two tributaries in the Amazon. Uh, well, he was there, he would collect sci- uh, specimens uh, and for scientific research. And so he saw this as kind of a holiday and uh, also uh, scientific research. Once he got down uh, to the Amazon, he learned about another tributary called the River of Doubt that had never been mapped out before. And so he decided that he was going to uh, go and map out this River of Doubt. Uh, It was going to take two months of hiking through the jungle uh, just to get to the River of Doubt where they could begin mapping it. And over those two months of hiking, uh, they dwindled from 20 men from the U.S. down to just three. Uh, there were other South Americans with uh, them that remained with them. But the three people that remained from the U.S. was Roosevelt, his son, and a guy named George Cherry. So one day, they're hiking, uh, as they're trekking through the jungle, uh, they realized that they had been traveling in circles for hours. Uh, Roosevelt wrote, In these thick South American forests, especially on cloudy days, a compass is an absolute necessary. We were struck by the fact that the native hunters and ranchmen on such days continually lost themselves 
and if permitted, traveled for miles through the forest, either in circles or in exactly the wrong direction. Teddy Roosevelt had a wham moment when he realized that they had been traveling in circles. And if he hadn't had that wham moment, they would have continued traveling in circles until they would have become completely exhausted and they actually would have died in the jungle. But because of the wham moment, uh, they were able to right their course uh, and finally make it out uh, and actually get to the, the river of doubt. And here in Matthew uh, 28, the disciples uh, have a wham moment. So I've, I've taken wham, and I'm using it also as an acronym. Uh, you'll see that it's not actually spelled correctly, but it's the sound that we're looking for. Uh, so the, the, there are four things we're going to look at. Uh, worship, authority, motivation, and mission. And I'm going to cover worship, authority, and mission, and Andrew Lamb's going to cover motivation uh, when he returns. Uh, so let's begin. Uh, from verses 16 through 18, uh, if you look, there's actually a bit of time that, is, that Matthew skips over uh, because he's wanting to, he's trying to make a point here. The other, the other gospels actually record quite a bit that happens uh, between verses 16 and 18. But Matthew uh, wants to make the point of, of Jesus first appearing to his disciples and then the Great Commission. So let's look now at verses 16 and 17. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. I'd like to take a moment and just pray uh, before we get moving further along into the sermon uh, for you and, and for myself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we ask, Lord, that you would quiet our hearts, that we would know what it means to worship you. Lord, I pray that you would remove all of those distractions that are in our minds, that are outside of those doors. Lord, that you would help our, our attention to be focused on you. Father God, I, I pray um, for myself. I pray that you would protect my heart this morning from, from pride as I preach. Lord, I pray that I would just be your humble servant, that people wouldn't look at me, but they would look at you. Because as we sung earlier, Lord, it is all about you. Lord, we also confess that, that we are weak and we are feeble. And so we need your spirit. We need your spirit to lead us and to direct us. We need your spirit to lead us into worship. Father, I pray, too, that, that if there's anything that comes out of my lips this morning that is not true, that you would give everyone here dull ears to hear that. Father, but I pray that you would open everybody's ears and hearts and minds to hear the truth of your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> so we just read verses 16 and 17. And here, it is about worship. It says that now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and they saw him, 
and they worshiped him, but some doubted. So the question here is what drives them to worship the Lord? And what drives us to worship the Lord? What did, what did their worship look like? What does our worship look like? When we hear the word worship, you know, many times uh, our thoughts immediately go to um, Sunday mornings, right? And more specifically, singing. But I want to tell you that uh, worship actually encompasses so much more than just singing. When we begin with the call to worship, when we, uh, <clears throat> when we do our confession of prayer, when we uh, listen to the sermon, when we uh, offer our tithes and offerings, when we participate in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper or baptism, all of this is worship Sunday mornings. And I want to I want to talk more later too about that we don't just have corporate worship as you know, but we also have uh, individual worship. In verse seventeen, uh, it says, "And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted." We see here that there was a focus on Christ. They weren't worshiping some other deity, were they? Uh, their focus wasn't on themselves. Their focus was on Christ. But as you read in 17, not everybody's focus was on Christ, right? Some of them doubted. And this means that some of them did not worship Christ. If, if you were to take a coin and you were, to, you were to flip it, you're either going to get heads or tails, right? Have you ever seen a coin that has the same image on both sides, two heads or two tails? I've been around the world. I've had many currencies in my hands, coins, and I've never seen a coin that has the same image on both sides. The same is true about worship. We're either going to worship Christ or we're going to worship something else. Man was created to worship, but because of the fall, many do not worship Christ. They worship other things. And the root of this of all of this is sin. Because what does it look like when we worship something else? What does it look like when we worship something else? John Calvin uh, really describes this well. Uh, he says that our hearts are a perpetual factory of idols. And so what he means by this is that we will continually make for ourselves idols to worship. We will continually make idols in our hearts to worship. And that's obviously the wrong kind of worship, isn't it? Uh, perhaps the biggest idol that we worship is ourself. We continually do things to please ourselves. We continually uh, make ourselves look better than someone else. We continually uh, list all the amazing things that we do for other people to see how amazing we are. And all you have to do is, is go on Facebook you know, Facebook's like the window to the soul, isn't it? And you go on there, and it's just chock full of, of everybody listening, showing pictures of the amazing things that they have done. And I myself am, am guilty of this. In fact, I was going to post a picture this past week, and I thought, well, you know, I'm preparing this sermon, and I'm talking about Facebook. I better not post this picture because, really, I just want people to look at, you know, see how awesome I am. Now, I'm guilty of this. We all are. 
Now, let's not mistake it either, though, that when people post stuff on Facebook, it's not always all about them, but they want you to share in the joy that they are experiencing. But many, many times, uh, what we see is that people are wanting people to look at them and actually worship them. Paul says in Romans 125, uh, he says about worshiping the very nature of ourselves. He says, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. We are the creature. The idol is ourselves. And so we seek to worship God. So as we seek to worship God, we are constantly putting things before God and worshiping those things, the idols that we have created. And that's why I made mention last week um, about Christ-centered worship, uh, that so many times we, we are, what we're doing in worship is not Christ-centered, that we have created these idols that we worship. And when we do this, this is actually something that drives us away from worshiping the Lord. But what drives us to worship the Lord like the disciples? If you were to go back to Exodus 20, uh, you'll read the account of God giving the, the law, the, the Ten Commandments. What is the second commandment? The second commandment, it says in the NIV, that you, will, you shall not make for yourself any graven image. You should not bow down and worship them. But if you look in the ESV, it actually says you shall not bow down to them or serve them. So what we see here is that worship is an actual action. It's not just a thought in your head. Worship is an action. It's, a, it's doing. And God is commanding us to worship him and serve him alone. And so, again, in Romans 12, 1, we read what Paul says. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You see, worship is an act of doing, and it encompasses our whole lives. When the disciples saw Jesus, they bowed down and worshiped him. They worshiped him alone. If you move to the end of the Bible, if you move to Revelation, John depicts what he sees in heaven. He depicts worship. And I want to look at Revelation 4 and 5, not the entire chapters, but just some snippets, just so that we can see, get a glimpse of the magnitude of what worship is like. Revelation 4.9 says, And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. Revelation 5.8, And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Revelation 5.11-14, through 14, then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering merits of merits and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain 
to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And all the four living creatures, and the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Do you see the magnitude of worship? This is a wham moment, isn't it? Worshiping Christ. So what does true worship look like in an individual's life? True worship is when somebody humbles them in front of the Lord. The elders, the creatures, they fell down and worshiped. If you look in John 4, Jesus talks to the Samaritan woman, and he says that you must worship God in spirit and in truth. If we were to turn back to the Psalms and look at King David, King David says in 50, Psalm 51, 16 and 17, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices are of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. It is of the heart. Jesus also talks extensively about this, about worship and what it means to worship the Lord, which is why he says to the, the Samaritan woman in John 4 that you are to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. So what does it mean to worship in truth? Worship in truth connects the heart of connects the heart or spirit of worship with the truth about God and his work of redemption as it as revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ uh, in the scriptures. Again, David tells us uh, as he shows us the importance of worshiping in truth and the necess- necessary linkage between truth and the word of God, David. King David wrote, teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear or rather worship your name. See, true worship of God is essentially a matter of the heart and spirit rooted in the knowledge and obedience by the revealed word of God. This means that to know worship that you must know the Bible also. You must read the word of the Lord. And actually, as you're reading the, the God's word, this is an act of worship. You must digest what God tells us in his word. The more you know what God is telling you in his word, the more you know what it means to worship the Lord and how you are to worship him. You know, unfortunately, today, and for thousands of years, actually, we have seen all kinds of defiled worship in, a, in our lives and in our church. When we look at worship in one's life, the things that one might come in contact with is hypocrisy in worship. I'm not just talking about corporate worship, but I'm talking about in your heart as well. What does hypocrisy in worship look like? Hypocrisy ties into what I mentioned earlier about idols. But hypocrisy is also a pseudo-pietism 
of, that pays lip service to covenant keeping and social justice and exhibits all the external trappings of true worship of God. However, it is godless. It is false because it's based on rules formulated by human teachers. Hypocrisy in worship is false worship, and that's both corporate worship and also in individual worship. Additionally, this false piety or false worship is also lawlessness, and that it multi multiplies sacrifice while it tramples the poor. This is impious and insincere worship. This goes directly against what God calls us to do in Micah 6.8. What does God call us to do in Micah 6.8? We are to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with our God. You see, hypocrisy in our worship and in our hearts is not true worship. It is false worship. And, you know, when you hear this, you might immediately go and think of the Pharisees because Jesus uh, describes this many times in the Gospels, doesn't he? He describes religious hypocrisy as both play-acting and godlessness. Worshippers who were outwardly pious, but inwardly profane. So, when you are worshiping the Lord in all areas of your life, as we read in Romans, when you are worshiping the Lord in all areas of your life, not just corporate worship, what is something that undergirds that worship? What is it that undergirds that worship? It is our faith in Christ, isn't it? Matthew 28, 17 says that some doubted. The some that doubted, they lacked faith in who Christ is. There is real faith in Christ, and there is fake faith in Christ. Last week, we looked at, uh, we saw how because our faith is not in vain, our faith is an act of worship. So when we look at what the disciples uh, did when they saw who Christ is, they worshiped him. They had their faith in Christ alone. They had placed their faith in Christ. And so Christ has them, sees them, and they are worshiping him. Right? They, they worship him. And when Christ is there before them, what, what does he say to them? We're going to dive deeper into this in the, in the coming weeks, but he doesn't say to them, good job. Uh, thank you for worshiping me. He doesn't promise them riches and glory here. No. Instead, he, he gives them a command. Right? Let me just read. So uh, after verse 17... Verse 18, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus gives them a command. And when we come to God, when we worship him, our, our focus is not on ourselves, but it is on Christ. Our hearts are open to Christ's leading, right? So the disciples are there, they're before Christ, and they are worshiping him. 
And Christ gives them a command. Their hearts are open to his command. But this is also a warning to us. Uh, It's not a warning about following Christ. But the warning here is that we need to be careful of what false worship is. What is false worship? Have you ever been to an evangelistic event, a crusade, or a a, a huge charismatic uh, type event? I've been to several uh, over the years for various reasons. And one of the things that, um, and I'm not saying here that all evangelistic events are bad or anything like that. But I've been to these, some of these events where uh, <clears throat> the, the people on stage, that what they are doing is they're trying to get people pumped up. Uh, they're trying to get people really excited. Uh, they, they, their focus is on what the event that's happening on themselves. And what they're, <clears throat> what they're actually trying to do is, is to play on your emotions, and they're trying to make you vulnerable. So because if they can make you vulnerable, then they can pretty much ask you to do anything, and you might do it. Their motives are false and not God-glorifying. They are seeking to be man-glorifying. But sometimes it's really hard, uh, especially when you're in the moment, to, to detect the, the difference between Christ-glorifying and man-glorifying. One of the reasons is, is because of the, the language that we use or because of the emotion that we might be feeling. You know, it, our hearts um, and our minds can deceive us so many times. And so a good question to ask ourselves in worship is, is doing this litmus test. Uh, one, is this Christ-centered? Is the focus on Christ or is the focus on man? And two, what we're doing in worship, while we're worshiping, does does this coincide with what the Bible teaches? If the answer is no to any one of these, then we know that we have strayed away from true worship, right? If it's false, then we need to stay away from it. But there's also another issue that comes into play here as well, that as we're judging for ourselves, is this true worship or not? Is this Christ-centered that many times uh, we can become critical of other people that are worshiping. We can become critical of the people that are leading us in worship. Uh, And then as we become critical, we begin to start complaining, perhaps. One of the things that in, in, you know, several years ago, I remember I became so critical of the worship leaders at a church that I was attending Um, that I decided I was going to start actually just coming into the service late so I would only hear the sermon. Uh, Because my heart had become so critical and judgmental of the people uh, up on the platform. And so we need to be careful, too, that we don't become critical and judgmental. We also have to remember that, you know, sometimes our, our faith is stronger than somebody else's faith. Sometimes we might be more mature than somebody else. And their walk. And so we need to, as believers, we need to extend grace to one another. When God showed me and convicted me of this, I realized that I need to extend grace to my brothers and sisters. And this has actually helped me tremendously that when I go to a worship service, when I'm in church somewhere, and I don't quite agree 
perhaps, with what's happening, I can extend them grace. And actually what that does is it draws my focus onto Christ. And it doesn't draw my focus onto man. And I'm actually able to worship the Lord. The reason the disciples are worshiping Christ and the reason that we are worshiping Christ is because of who Christ is. Right? Christ is the Lord. He is the eternal son of the living God. And it is the Holy Spirit who has illumined the disciples' minds of who Christ is, and the Holy Spirit has illumined our minds of who Christ is. And so we are able to come and we are able to worship Christ because it is the Holy Spirit that actually draws us in, draws us into worshiping the Lord. So again, I ask, what drives us to worship the Lord? What drives us to worship the Lord like we read in the scriptures with the, with the disciples? What drives you to worship the Lord? Is it love for the Lord? Is it thankfulness? Is it knowing that you want to worship the, the creator of the heavens and the earth? That is part of it. But what really drives us to worship the Lord is the spirit of the Lord, is the Lord himself. He is the one who drives us to worshiping him. God has taken our hearts of stone and he has given us hearts of flesh. And he has enabled us to worship him through uh, the life-saving blood of Jesus Christ. If we weren't worshiping God through Jesus Christ, then our worship would be no different than those people that craft idols with their hands, graven images, and bow down and worship them. But because of Christ, because of his work on the cross, our worship is now true and pleasing to the Lord. All that ugly stuff that, that we try to attach uh, to worship, such as maybe our minds being distracted when we come and worship, is made pure by Christ. Christ uh, has clothed us in his righteousness so that when we worship the Lord, our worship is a pleasing aroma uh, to him. But I don't want you to make the mistake either, thinking that uh, it doesn't matter if, if, if Christ is covered us and his righteousness, it doesn't matter what kind of worship we do. It does matter. It does matter. God is serious. He, he wants to be worshipped, and he, he wants us to strive to worship him correctly. Look at 2 Samuel 6, 5 through 7. <clears throat> so the Ark of the Covenant is being brought in, and the people are worshiping I'll read it for us. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nakan, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen had stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. Wow. Uh, you might be thinking, why, God, would you kill this man for trying to stop the ark from falling over? Well, there was disobedience happening 
actually, the Ark of the Covenant was to be transported on poles, not, on, not by ox cart. And so uh, if the Israelites had been tra- transporting the Ark of the Covenant on poles, there would be no stumbling of the oxen, right? And what we see here is an example of God's fury about people that are not worshiping him as he instructed them to do. And so, wow, that that puts fear in my heart. Um, What are we as Christians instructed to do in worship? Well, I'll tell you what we are to do. We are to worship Christ alone. God does not want to be worshipped alongside of man. You see, man had the idea of transporting the Ark of the Covenant on an ox cart, not on poles like God had instructed. God is to be worshipped alone. What is amazing, though, is that uh, because it is the Lord that brings us to worship him, he is the one that makes it so that we can worship him. And the Lord gives us the motivation to worship him alone. And it's by this that we come and we worship him. We worship him by his word. God's word gives us instruction of worship, of coming to Christ. One example that we see in the New Testament of the instruction of worship, right, is the Lord's Supper. In 1 Corinthians 11, we celebrate the Lord's Supper every Sunday. And if you read the whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 11, you'll read that, that there were people coming to the Lord's Supper. To, uh, they, they were <clears throat> making a mockery of the Lord's Supper. They weren't examining their hearts. They were coming to church. They were getting drunk. Uh, they were being gluttonous with the food. And Paul says that God has, some of you have actually died in the church because of what you're making of the Lord's Supper. It is a serious matter. Right? God is not to be mocked. But he calls us, he calls us to come and worship him. God's word tells us what is right and wrong. And this does give us pause to examine ourselves in worship, doesn't it? As we think about worship. What, what is your worship like? Not just coming here on Sundays, worshiping together, but what is, your, your pers- what is in your heart? What does your personal worship look like? Do you worship the triune God who created you and loves you? Is your worship directed at Christ or is it directed at man? Is your worship hypocrisy in your heart? You know, I say all of these things just as guilty as you are. That we all fall short in all of these areas. But Christ, he has died. He has, he has forgiven us of our sins. And, and he calls us into fellowship to worship him. Now, as we go about this week, let's, let's encourage one another in our worship. Let's ask one another this week. Message, Facebook, calling. Ask one another how is your worship coming this week? What are, what are some of the things that you, you're struggling in? You know, this morning, maybe some of you are really struggling to worship the Lord. It's hard because 
you're not really seeing him for who he is. It's hard maybe because you're not sensing his love and his mercy in your life. And I'd ask that you come next week and the following weeks as we dive deeper into worshiping the Lord and what it means to worshiping the Lord and why we worship the Lord. If you're struggling this morning, ask God for grace and mercy to give you strength to know him, to know his love for you, to help you to worship him. One of, one of the ways, and ask the Lord to strengthen your faith in him. One of, one of the ways that our faith is strengthened in the Lord is actually participating in the Lord's Supper as we come together, participating in the Lord's Supper. It's also a way of worship. And so right now, I want to move into the Lord's Supper. So if I could get the, the men that are helping uh, in the Lord's Supper to come.